Hey everybody and welcome to another episode. In today's episode, I'm going to be answering a viewer question. Miguasha83 on TikTok wanted to know, what are the different types of evolution? This is a very good question and we should never be content with blank happened or happens. It should always be followed up with, okay, how? Now, evolution broadly means to change over time. Everything evolves. Erosion happens, the universe expands, and your fingernails grow. But that's not what we mean by evolution. The way I'm going to approach this question is to specifically address the question of how one species changes into another, which is the idea we all have in mind when we hear or say evolution. To help me answer this question, I'll be joined by my friend, a fellow science content creator, Simon. You can find him on TikTok at Science with Simon. All right, let's get started. Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you that if you like this content and want to support me, you can check me out on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Just search Planet Peterson on those platforms. You can also find links to my Patreon, Venmo, and more by going to my YouTube channel and clicking the link in the banner that says support the channel. Okay, back to the episode. I want to preface the discussion here by saying we will not be discussing genetics. This episode would be over an hour long to do a barely adequate job of linking genetics with the concept of speciation. I take it that you, the listeners, know that traits are, by and large, determined by genes, we inherit genes from our parents, and genetic composition can change. That's what makes evolution possible, but what are the circumstances by which evolution occurs? That's what we are discussing today. So again, what does it mean for a species to evolve? It depends on how specific you want to be. Evolution was a word Darwin actually never used. He called it descent with modification. In only a few generations, dramatic changes in a population of organisms can develop. They have been modified, but they're still members of the same species. We know that the only way for those changes to occur is by changes to the genes or changes in gene expression. Critics of evolution, who I regularly debate, concede that these micro-mutations happen, but macro-mutations are impossible. Show me one example of a dog giving birth to a cat is a common counter-argument I hear. Dogs do not, nor could they ever, give birth to cats. Every single organism that's ever been born was the same species as its parent or parents. In other words, it could breed with members of the previous generation. But let's ask ourselves, do those micro-mutations ever stop happening? What happens when after 10,000 generations, 10,000 micro-mutations have occurred? Obviously, I'm oversimplifying, but how much has the species changed now? Would it be able to breed with its ancestors from 10,000 generations ago? Almost certainly not. It's a new species, and some of its relatives, perhaps 5,000 generations ago, migrated to a different area and evolved into other unique species. I always find myself using language as an analogy. Everybody speaks the language their parents spoke, yet we know that languages change over time and completely new languages gradually develop from ancestral languages. Give me one example of English speakers who give birth to French-speaking children. See how ridiculous that argument sounds? It's not the case that, one day, some Latin speakers decided, you know what, let's just change almost all the words but keep the roots. Our group will start speaking French, your group will speak Spanish, your group will speak Portuguese, and your group will speak Italian. The changes happen so gradually that they never actually 
happen. And so the same goes for species. Now we actually have a problem. What really is a species? You know that a human and a horse are two completely different animals. But what about a horse and a zebra? You know that they're similar, very similar, but not the same. A horse and a zebra cannot typically mate. Neither can a human and a horse. Occasionally, a horse and a zebra can produce offspring, but they're sterile, like the more familiar mule, which is a donkey-horse hybrid. The reason these crosses don't work is, although there are enough genetic similarities to produce viable living offspring, the parents actually have different numbers of chromosomes. Humans have 46 chromosomes, but sperm and egg only carry 23 each, which fuse to become the first cell of an offspring. Horses, zebras, and donkeys all have different numbers of chromosomes, ranging from 32 to 66. This makes it impossible for the sperm and egg cells to correctly divide the genetic material and pass it down. But let's look at a different example, the leopard. There are many species of leopard, including the African, Indian, Javan, Arabian, and Amur leopard. What distinguishes these species, you may have guessed, is not just their appearance, but where they live. But unlike horses and zebras, these leopards are not very different genetically. They are technically subspecies. And although they don't, because they are geographically isolated from one another, they could breed and produce fertile offspring. What counts as a subspecies versus a species is, to a large extent, subjective. Nowhere is this more apparent than in the insect world. This is how we end up with 20,000 species of bee alone, a mind-bogglingly large number. Now, just because this is, in part, subjective, doesn't mean that it's equally valid to say a bee is a unique form of insect and there is only one true species of bee. But maybe there are only 10,000 species. What we need to do is come up with a scientific description of a species. And it turns out there are many. One is the biological species concept proposed by the celebrated biologist Ernst Mayer which states that a species is a group of organisms that breed or have the potential to breed and are reproductively isolated from other groups. This definition is, I feel, the best, but it's not perfect. One glaring problem is that the concept of breeding is almost completely irrelevant with regard to asexually reproducing organisms. You'll hear more about that from Simon in a bit. This definition also breaks down with some examples of hybridization, and also in what are called ring species, which you'll hear about later. Another species concept is the cohesion concept. A cohesive species is a population or multiple populations of organisms with genetic cohesion. This is to say that their genes are similar enough that the members of the population broadly share the same characteristics. This gives a home to both asexually reproducing organisms and hybrids, given that the hybrids remain rare and don't change the overall population genetics. Finally, there is the cladistic or phylogenetic species concept. A clade is all the members of an evolutionary branch on the tree of life that come from a single branch. This is why scientists say birds are dinosaurs, which on the one hand sounds absurd because dinosaurs were a kind of reptile and birds are not a kind of reptile but birds and dinosaurs can be found on the same smaller branch of the evolutionary tree than dinosaurs and snakes, for example, can. Now, this doesn't mean that all birds and all dinosaurs are one species. Organisms must not only be from a common branch, but also share commonly inherited traits. 
This definition allows for asexually reproducing organisms to be classified into species and also does not rely on geographic isolation to define a species. Say a type of bird got transported to a faraway island in a bad storm. Those birds are reproductively isolated, but that at that moment still have the same characteristics as the mainland members. So they would be considered, according to this definition, the same species until one of them developed traits that are unique to that specific population. I'm going to toss it over to Simon, who's going to talk a little bit more about how the concept of a species works in the world of microorganisms. Thanks, Eric. So now we know that the word species is not as clear-cut as some of us may have first believed. It's actually an incredibly difficult task to look at the world and come up with one single, universally applicable, unambiguous definition of a species because life varies so much. Knowing this, it should come as no surprise then that even in the microbial world, perhaps especially in the microbial world, there is no universally accepted concept of a species. Uh, at least in the macroscopic world, we have very obvious visual cues that different-looking animals may be different species. While dozens of different bacterial species may look nearly identical, making a microbiologist's job a little bit harder, although there are different shapes that they can take on, spheres, rods, and spirals, just to name a few. So what are microbiologists using to identify and separate species? Well, to a certain extent, some of the same jumbled bag that other biologists use. Like Eric said, cohesion is one way. Just are these bacteria genetically similar enough? And we have really, really good tools for sequencing and analyzing DNA. Now, without getting too deep into the weeds, we know that some DNA, specifically the DNA that encodes the genes for ribosomes, are highly conserved, meaning because they are so critically important to the cell, they don't really mutate often. So if we compare ribosomal DNA in a specific way and get a 97% plus similarity, that's probably a good starting point. We compare DNA in a couple other different ways and we get really high figures, and that's a really, really strong case that we are looking at the same species. Another concept Eric mentioned was the phylogenetic species concept. For bacteria and archaea, this would mean that a species is operationally defined as a group of strains sharing a high degree of similarity in many traits and sharing a recent common ancestor for those previously mentioned ribosomal DNA. So currently, we have extremely impressive databases of these different ribosomal genes. Uh, one is simply the Ribosomal Database Project. It's a product of the Center of Microbial Ecology at Michigan State University. In the National Institute of Health, National Center of Biotechnology Information, or NCBI, keeps an extremely impressive database of genome sequences. And there are actually multiple international culture collection repositories where people send their species of microbes to be stored. And those can actually be subcultured and sent out to different locations around the world for research purposes. The one I order for from my work is called the American Type Culture Collection, or the ATCC. So if there is a new species of bacteria or archaea that's believed to be discovered, and currently there are more than 10,000, the International Code of Nomenclature of Bacteria sets the rules that have to be followed. Number one, a detailed description of the organism's characteristics, distinguishing traits, proposed name, all have to be published. And two, 
viable cultures of that organism must be deposited into at least two international culture collections. And this is all overseen by the International Committee on the Systematics of Prokaryotes, or the ICSP. And so even though defining a bacterial or archaeal species may be kind of hard in theory, there is an international effort among scientists to make it easier. These international standards, international biological collections, and these vast information databases bring us to a point that, practically speaking, even in the light of vast biological diversity, we can, at least administratively, identify and separate species. So how did we end up in a world where populations of organisms, whether they live amongst, next to, or far away from other organisms of the same species, eventually become distinct? There are two basic types of speciation. They are allopatric and sympatric. Allopatric speciation refers to the process whereby populations of a species become physically separated, such as by geographic barriers like a mountain range or a body of water. This can lead to genetic changes over time, eventually resulting in the formation of two distinct reproductively isolated species. A majorly important detail that I haven't mentioned is that evolution and speciation don't happen to individuals, but to populations. It is populations that evolve. Imagine we have a group of chimpanzees. They're all members of the same species, but there's some variation between them. But that variation moves through the population because two chimpanzees, who maybe aren't close relatives at all, eventually leave behind descendants who will form a breeding pair. Every member, to some extent, is part of a humongous family. Now, what if the population gets split in half and cut off from each other? Now, some of those idiosyncratic genetic changes that happen in some members of this half of the population never get a chance to mingle with the other half of the population and vice versa. Eventually, those small genetic changes add up so much genetic variation that the members of the two populations become distinct they become different species. It could be in the sense that they are separated and so they don't happen to interbreed, or they are so genetically different now that they couldn't breed even in principle. And guess what? That really did happen. Chimpanzees in the wild are separated from the bonobo or pygmy chimpanzee. All bonobos live south of the mighty Congo River and all chimpanzees live north of the Congo River. Because they cannot cross this barrier, the populations have diverged genetically so much as to become two different species. The various species that have been isolated on islands become distinct species this way as well. A remarkable quirk of evolution is that species tend to become either giant or miniature versions of their mainland cousins. A unique species of mammoth, the pygmy mammoth, lived on the Channel Islands off the coast of California and was a direct descendant of the Colombian mammoth, the second largest mammoth species that ever lived. There are tons of examples of this phenomenon you can check out. The other type of speciation is sympatric speciation, which refers to the process of speciation that occurs within a single geographical location. This can happen through mechanisms such as polyploidy, where an organism develops an extra set of chromosomes. Now, how do you get extra chromosomes? Well, without getting too much into the weeds, when our bodies make gametes, which are our sperm or egg cells, they have to split the chromosomes in half. We talked about that earlier. Sometimes the splitting doesn't happen evenly. So instead of exactly half the chromosomes going to one cell and half going into the other, a couple of extra ones sneak into one and then the other is missing a few. 
if a sperm or an egg with extra chromosomes happens to fertilize another sperm or egg, then that individual has extra chromosomes. This has happened in the plant kingdom many times, and if you remember, mismatched chromosome numbers make producing offspring nearly impossible. Sympatric speciation can also happen through the evolution of reproductive barriers, such as different mating behaviors or physical structures that prevent interbreeding between two subpopulations. If you've ever been outside at night in a place near water, you've probably experienced the sensory overload of hundreds of frogs or thousands of insects calling for each other. Many of these species can only hear the calls of their own species. Lucky for them. This creates a reproductive barrier. There are other ways they can speciate in the same location too. Species that live in the same environment undergo what's called niche partitioning. A species niche is the collective set of behaviors, habitats, and mating practices that each species engages in. No two species can have the exact same niche, so they have to partition. Because there's always variation among the members of a population, there is the potential for partitioning and then reproductive isolation to happen. Another mechanism that can cause speciation to happen in one environment is hybridization. This is far more common in the plant world and many examples have been documented. And while rare, it has been observed in the animal world as well. Peter and Rosemary Grant famously documented the emergence of a totally new species of ground finch on the island of Daphne Major a tiny, desolate volcanic island in the Galapagos. The Galapagos is famously one of the greatest places to see allopatric speciation. The tortoises and finches on the different islands are highly distinct. But one bird, an Española cactus finch from a neighboring island, found its way to Daphne Major, stayed there, had some bird babies with the local species, the medium ground finch, and produced a brand new hybrid species now called the Daphne Major finch. Species can even be driven apart by other species. There's a bacteria called Wolbachia that specializes in infecting arthropods. Two species of wasp that live in the same environment but cannot produce viable offspring were treated with antibiotics, killing their Wolbachia infections, and now the wasps were able to breed and produce fertile offspring. An infection alone appears to have driven them apart. Speaking of infections, there are three groups of mammals, the monotremes, which lay eggs, the marsupials, and the placental mammals. The origin of the placenta organ appears to have been a viral infection that changed the genetic composition of certain mammals, us and the marsupials, leading to the formation of the placenta. In the future, we may yet discover more unique mechanisms that split populations into distinct species. A while ago, I mentioned ring species. Ring species are sort of a combination of allopatric and sympatric at the same time. There's a species of gull that lives near the Arctic Circle, and they tend to migrate east to west. Now, as you go from east to west, what you find is the bordering species do have the ability to reproduce with one another, but their range is limited. So every several hundred miles, you run into an area where you find a new type of subspecies of these gulls. Now you constantly find the ability to breed across that boundary, but once you come full circle, it turns out that the gulls at the end of that loop are not genetically compatible with the gulls right next to them. So in other words, we have clockwise genetic compatibility, but we do not have counterclockwise genetic compatibility. So that was a lot of information. The thing about evolution is, on the one hand, it's incredibly elegant and simple, 
but on the other hand, it is as complex as life itself. It truly is a bottomless pit of information, and I'm certain we will do many episodes on it in the future. But for now, that is where we will end. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Yeah.